Well, Pastor Ken has invited me here this morning um, to preach a message that um, just so well fit with um, what we're uh, with what your series is. Um, I had recently preached a, a sermon on the passage that you guys were approaching this morning, and Pastor Ken has invited me here to share this message with you guys. Um, and the message that I've got to preach this morning is nothing that I, you guys haven't heard me preach before. However, I think it's important that we learn to listen to this message through the lens of this story, because I think this morning we're, de- we're, we're dealing with one of the most weaponized passages of Scripture in the Bible. One of the passages of scripture most often used and taken for our own devices, whether or not they actually be within the will of God. One of the passages we've heard often preached and often preached in the same way over and over again. But this morning, I'd like to invite us to look at this passage in a new light. This passage may be in a way that we haven't before and see if we can't come to a better understanding of this story. If you would, please turn in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 is where we'll be this morning. And when you get there, we'll be starting in verse 12. And it reads like this. And Jesus entered the temple... And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, and they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. So how many of you have heard a sermon preached on this passage before? Probably a lot of us. Yep, yep. And then how many of you have heard at some point in that sermon preached on this passage, the pastor say something along the lines of, oh, oh, this is okay, because this, this should show us that it's okay for us to be angry, it's for, okay for us to get mad, as long as it's righteous anger or righteous indignation. People preach this all the time. And then how many of you have seen people leave those services claiming to have righteous anger? But it looked more like self-righteous anger. That happens all too often as well. And I don't know where we keep on getting this same sermon from. I have a few theories, though. One one of which is that maybe, maybe we've always approached this passage scared. We think, oh, Jesus has done something wrong here. This is really out of character for Jesus. So we feel like we need to acquit Jesus. We need to vindicate Jesus of some sort of crime here. Ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you this morning, Jesus does not need you to be his lawyer. Can I say that again? Jesus does not need you to be his lawyer. Maybe another reason is because for the same reason, maybe pastors have been so scared of teaching this passage. Because how do you explain what Jesus is doing here? Because like I said, this is really out of character for Jesus. And I imagine that one of them probably just came up with, that's what this passage is about. It's about righteous anger. And soon everybody was preaching it because nobody else knew how to deal with it. 
But this morning, I'd like us to look at this a little bit different. Approach this without fear and look and see what we can actually learn from what's going on in the temple. See if we can't come to a better understanding of what Jesus is doing here together. Something that's going to help us in, in this journey through this story is to understand the context of which this is happening. This is happening right as Passover is coming up. Jesus has entered the town for Passover. You know, you've got all the palm branches being laid. You've got the cloaks laid out on the road. He's entering town because Passover is coming up. And actually, Passover is this weekend. That's what's going on this weekend. So it's very fitting for this time. So they've laid their cloaks, Jesus has come in, Passover is coming up, and a big part of the Passover celebration was something known as the Passover Seder. Now what the Passover Seder is, is this meal where where the Jewish people take part in these kind of weird rituals to help them remember their story, the story of God's faithfulness as he led them out of Egypt and out of slavery. So they have these weird rituals during this meal where they'd only eat at certain times. They would only drink after certain readings. They would eat these bitter herbs in order to help themselves experience the unpleasantness of being slaves in Egypt. They would even sit weird in their chairs, all to help them remember their story because each weird action was connected to a different part of their story. And the weird actions didn't just start at the meal, though, because there were some weird rituals leading up to the meal as well. The one I want to focus on this morning was known as the Berakat Hametz. And the Berakat Hametz was this time where the, right before Passover, as Passover was coming up, the, the Jewish people would go through their house and remove all the leavened bread products from their house. They would take out, even down to the last crumb, they would take all the leavened bread products and take it out of the house. This was to help them remember the part of their story where God said, listen, when, when you're going to be leaving Egypt, you're not going to have time to let your bread rise. You need to go. So they do this weird ritual to, to help themselves remember. They'd even get the kids involved in the story. They'd give the kids like a, a, a feather and like a brown paper bag, and they'd hide like little bits of, of leavened bread around the house, and the kids would like use the feather as like a baby broom and sweep up the last bit of the leaven in their house. It was, it, it was to get the kids involved. So they're experiencing the story too. And over time, this Berakat Hametz, where they're removing all the leaven from the house, that came to symbolize more than just removing the leaven from the house. It came to symbolize removing impurities from their presence. Ooh, that sounds kind of like Lent, doesn't it? Where we've practiced self-denial, we've removed things from our lives in order to further recognize those things in our lives that separate us from God and the reason why Jesus had to come and die. So, I'd like to imagine that since Jesus is entering town just before Passover in this passage, that maybe the Jewish people are preparing maybe that evening to go home and perform their own berakat chametz and remove the leaven, remove the impurities from their house. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus removes the impurities from his house. Jesus performs his own berakat chametz. He's, he's participating in the Passover, right? Instead of, except instead of leaven, he's got money changers. So we have to ask ourselves, what was the impurity here that Jesus was looking to remove? 
Because so many people will look at you and say, well, the impurity was that they were buying and selling things in the church. And you can't buy and sell things in the church. That's just bad. That's, Jesus will come mad at you for that. But, but I, think, I think the impurity goes deeper here than simply buying and selling things. And here's why. Jesus comes in off the street, comes into the temple, begins overturning the tables, chasing out those with animals, and says, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Or if you read it out of Mark, because this passage appears in all four Gospels, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of of thieves. And that for all nations part is important as we'll come to see here in a minute because Jesus isn't just yelling these things. This isn't just Jesus's battle cry as he enters the temple. Jesus is actually quoting scripture. He's quoting scripture. We see I I want you guys to listen here just for a second as I read out of Isaiah 56 um and I am I'm going to have you guys listen all the way to the end and see if you can't recognize anything from this passage. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant... I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants and to everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Did you hear it? My house is to be a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus is quoting scripture as he enters the temple. He's quoting here from Isaiah 56. In the context of what he's quoting from Isaiah 56, he addresses two categories. He addresses the foreigners and the eunuchs and says, these people should have no reason to believe that they do not belong in my presence. They should have no reason to believe that that they're not welcome here because if they come in seeking me, I will meet them as the same way as anybody else because it would have been so easy for them back in Isaiah or at any time during scripture to look at these people maybe from foreign lands and to say, "Uh, you're from a land that worships foreign gods, have all these these sinful practices. You're not welcome with the people of God. We're the holy people of God. We don't... No, we don't associate. You can't worship with us. And it would have been so easy for them to look at the eunuchs in the same way because, well, if you don't know what a eunuch is, you might want to go home and ask your parents. Um, I will try to describe what it is as gracefully as possible this morning. So it, back, in the, back in the day, the kings would have people take care of their house, um, and they really had to trust the people taking care of the bedroom chambers uh, because of how prevalent rape and things like that were in the culture. So sometimes the kings would have those people taking care of the bedroom chambers 
mutilate themselves in such a fashion to where that would not be an issue. And this was something God had explicitly said, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. So now it would, been, would have been really easy for the people to send the message to these people of, oh, you screwed up. That's it for you. You're a dry tree. You're not welcome here. And God says, no, 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 no. Because if these people come in and turn to seek me, if they come in looking to find me, I will meet them in my house and in my temple in the same way as I meet you. I will gather those who are not already gathered, says the Lord of the outcasts of Israel. That's what Isaiah says. That's the context of what Jesus is quoting here. And it's fitting when you consider what Jesus has just walked into. Because Jesus comes in off the street and walks in, and most scholars believe he's walked into this market set up in the Gentile courts of the temple. Now, what you have to understand about the Gentile courts is the Jewish people, because, you know, they were the people of God, they were allowed to go further into the temple and told the Gentiles, uh, you're not the people of God, so you have to worship on this outer court. They couldn't go as far in as the Jews could. But now Jesus has walked in, and most scholars believe that this market is set up in the Gentile courts. So they've already been pushing out the Gentiles, but now they push them out even further because they're using their worship space for a marketplace. And now during this most holy of holidays for the Jewish people, where are the Gentiles going to worship? Not the Jews' problem. So Jesus has walked into this situation where they've said to people who, who aren't like them, no, you're, you're not welcome here. Not unless you're coming in to buy something so we get something out of it. And they've got, they've got this market set up. And on, on the surface, having a market set up actually doesn't sound like a bad idea. Because you've got people coming from far and wide to, to come and sacrifice and offer offerings in the temple in Jerusalem. And if you were traveling that far through, through the wilderness, you didn't want to take your sacrifice animal with you because it would be hard to keep that alive on that long journey. So it, it would have been just easier for them to say, oh, I'll just buy one when I get there. So they've got this market set up, and that kind of makes sense. But like, what, what we see in this passage is it would appear that some amount of extortion is taking place. We do know that, that when the people would come in, they'd come into the temple and they'd be stopped by the religious leaders and say, oh, hold on, you can't use that money here. You see, your money has picture of, of, of foreign gods or of Caesar who thinks he's a god. Yeah, you can't use that in the temple. You have to use temple-approved currency. And you can get that here for a fee. So they'd come in, and before they could even buy anything, they, they'd, be, they'd be charged to exchange this money out for temple-approved currency, and then they'd, they'd go into the temple looking to buy their sacrifice, and they'd, they'd, the temple leaders would be making this money off of oxen and off of sheep. And the one that makes me really mad is they were making money off pigeons. That makes me mad. I can't believe they were making money off pigeons. Your translation, some of your translations might say doves. That's because that Greek uh, word can mean either one. I bet they were selling both, and that just makes me mad that they'd be selling pigeons. Why are you so mad about pigeons? I'll tell you why I'm mad about pigeons. Because back in the day, if you were poor, sometimes you could not afford the animals required for that sacrifice. 
Because some of the sacrifices required specific animals, and some of those were pretty big. And if you were poor, you couldn't afford it. Like, for example, if your sacrifice required two sheep, you could not afford two sheep if you were poor. So the law gave this provision that if you were poor and you could not afford it, you could trade out one of your sheep for a couple birds. That would make it cheaper on you. If you were poor, you traded them out for doves. And if you were really poor, you traded them out for pigeons. So the fact that they're selling pigeons here means that they not only had no problem pushing out the Gentiles, not only had, had no problem taking advantage of travelers, but they also had no problem taking advantage of the poor. <sighs> Should make us mad. Makes me mad. This is a situation Jesus has walked into, and he says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all peoples. You cannot keep on oppressing these people. You cannot keep on sending the message that they're not welcome here. My house is to be a house of prayer for all peoples, but you have made it a den of thieves. Here, Jesus is also quoting scripture. He's doubled down on the scripture. The you have made a den of thieves is straight out of Jeremiah 7. And in Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah is expressing God's frustration over the same thing we see going on in the temple. Jeremiah 7, God's upset because the people have been, have been oppressing the poor and oppressing the foreigner. Yep, sounds like exactly what Jesus has just walked into. And Jesus says, you have made it a den of thieves, quoting Jeremiah, where it says, has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your sight? Behold, I've seen it, says the Lord. Jesus has doubled down on this scripture making it very clear what he's upset about. He sees the oppression. He sees the message that the church is sending. The church has set up tables, barriers to entry for these people who are trying to get into the church, trying to experience God during Passover. And they've set up these barriers saying, uh, you don't really belong here. You're not God's people because of where you've come from, what you've done. All right, I guess you can come in here as long as we get something out of it. And Jesus has to go through and flip their tables. Because Jesus is trying to send the message that it does not matter where you've come from. And it does not matter what you've done. And it does not matter what you've looked like or, or what have you. Anybody who comes into this house seeking to find God will find him. And God will meet them here in the same way that he meets all the rest of you. He will bless them with eternal life in the same way he promises to bless anybody else with eternal life. And yet we see the same kind of, of attitudes in the church today. You could probably go out on the street and into, into any store and, and see and, and find people who have been hurt by the church because the church has set up tables, has set up these attitudes that's saying, no, you're not welcome here. Not after what you've done. Not after where you've come from. Even the church today is guilty of setting up tables. I was uh, in class at school. It was one of my religion classes. And my professor walks in one day and she brings in this whiteboard without saying a word. She just drags a whiteboard and it, she brought in a whiteboard every day. But what she didn't normally do is start writing without telling us what she was writing. And she fills this entire board. 
She's writing things that each, each thing she wrote was a person or, or a situation that there was something wrong or maybe something just not quite right or, or something that she knew might make the good church people in the room uncomfortable. She's writing things like an illegal immigrant hurt on the job and afraid to get medical help. She's writing things like a homeless man who's an alcoholic. She wrote a, a gay man mourning the loss of a loved one. She writes a, a Muslim family who just immigrated to America but speaks no English. And she fills this entire board. And then she looks at this room full of religion majors and says, all right, you can pick two to help. You can only pick two. So I want you to pick your top two using whatever criteria you want to use. So we picked our two. And then she asks, so why'd you pick those two? And we answered. And then she asks, so why didn't you pick the others? And this wasn't the lesson she was teaching that day, but with every answer that was given, I began to see the tables that have been taught that had been taught to be set up by the church for so long. Things like, oh, we've always been taught that we don't like that kind of people in the church. Ooh. Oh, they seemed like too much work. I was worried about my own safety. Oh, they had their chance and they screwed it up. Now, just to give us a little bit of hope this morning, these weren't the actual attitudes of the religion majors in the room that day toward these people. Uh, everybody, everybody was at the end of the class saying, these, this was the very reason why I wanted to follow my call to ministry is to get rid of these attitudes that we've always been taught. But yet these attitudes are so ingrained in the church that when we ask who you're going to help and who are you not, these are the things that come into the back of our mind to make those decisions. Because for so long, we've been taught that there are tables that we as the church people don't go near that kind of people. We as the church people, uh, we keep them away, keep them at a distance. It's been a trend. And Jesus comes into the temple and performs his own bedekat chametz, removing these impurities, removing the barriers. The uh, church I go to um, in Nashville, uh, I get a lot of attention from my professors when I tell them that I go to that church because it's one of the churches most known for for breaking down the tables and not having any barriers to entry. The church is shocked full with men in drug recovery, alcohol recovery programs, chocked full of people from this background or that, uh, including the pastor. Um, I actually went one Sunday and took uh, Corbin, for those of you who know Corbin and his girlfriend, they came to my church one Sunday, and I had no idea it was a baptism Sunday. I had no idea. It was was a nice surprise for all of us. Um, So they get doing the baptisms, and they bring this one man up there, and he begins to give his testimony of what had happened because he fa- had found this church that despite his, the mess he had made of his life, despite his, his previous track record with drugs, our pastor got him connected with, with recovery programs and got him connected with the church and get, let him be fully included. 
and that changed his life. And I remember walking out of that service with Corbin, and Corbin looked at me and goes, that testimony was great. And I said, and if you look around that sanctuary, this sanctuary is littered with testimonies just like that. Because we see the results of what happens when the church has moved its tables and people can come in and find God. Because God promises to meet those people there in the same way that he promises to meet everybody else. So we need to be checking ourselves. Check ourselves as a church. What tables may we have set up that are preventing people from finding Christ? What attitudes do we harbor as a church that say, ah, that kind of people, we try to distance ourselves with that kind of people. We want to we look totally different, so we gonna, we're going to keep you as far away as possible. We need to check our churches, and we also need to check our personal lives too, right? Because we're the church. So as we leave this building, we need to check ourselves and make sure that there aren't people in our workplaces and our day-to-day lives that we look at and say, yeah, that's a person I don't go near because you know what they've done? Uh, I keep my, my distance from you. This takes humility. This takes humility for us to be able to remove those attitudes because so often it's easy for us to look look at our lives and say, "Uh, no, I've got that table set up for a reason because I want to, no, no. We need to say, whoops, we got a table there. Let me move that. Let me move that with with, with a feather before Jesus has to come in and flip it. Because we worship a God who says that you're not too lost. You're not too broken. You're not too sinful. You're not too far gone. You haven't screwed up too far to where God cannot meet you here if you come in seeking him. And if we have attitudes in our own lives that say otherwise, then we need to check ourselves and we need to get rid of those because if we have those attitudes in our own lives, then God may have to come through and flip our tables. We need to perform our own berakat chametz on our own lives and remove the impurities, remove the leaven from our presence so that we can tear down these tables that Jesus might have to go through and flip. Jesus has made his grand entry. He's entered the town. Hosanna, right? They've laid down their cloaks. They've laid down the palm branches. They enter... And we hear Jesus flips the tables, but it's interesting that I, I mentioned before, this passage is in all four Gospels, but most of the Gospel writers don't seem to want to spend much time at all with the part of the passage that we normally think of. The whole flipping the tables thing, you know, the one that we all think of when we hear this passage. They only give that just a short little bit in your Bibles and spend more time with what happens afterwards. We see in Matthew, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple after the tables had been moved and he healed them. And the children flowed in from the streets into the temple singing, Hosanna to the son of David. Right? 
And in other gospels, we see that, that because the tables were moved, people came in and were taught every day and were able to come to better understanding of who Jesus was. And we see in scripture that when the tables are moved, that people are healed. And when the tables are moved, people can praise him. And that when the tables are moved, people can learn. Because God was faithful to meet these people in there as soon as the things that the church had set up to keep them out had been moved out of the way. When the church moves its tables, God is faithful to meet those people here. It doesn't matter where they've come from. It doesn't matter what they've done. I want us to, to listen to these lines from, from a hymn um, I love this hymn because it gives us a modern look at, at what, this, what this looks like um, for today's world. Listen closely to these, these lyrics. When the church of Jesus shuts its outer door, lest the roar of traffic drown out our voice of prayer, may our prayers, Lord, make us ten times more aware that the world we banish is our Christian care. If our hearts are lifted where the devotion soars high above this hungry, suffering world of ours, lest our hymns drug us to forget its needs, forge our Christian worship into Christian deeds. Lest the gifts we offer, money, talents, time, serve to salve our conscience to our secret shame. Lord, reprove us, inspire us by the way you give, teach us, dying Savior, how true Christians live. Let us not become so pious that we think that what we do in here is the thing that matters. That we become so high-minded in, in what we're doing here that we get so caught up in, you know, trying to, trying to sing and, and trying to pray and do all this that, that we can get going on here to make us think that we have a Christian walk without ever looking outside and realizing that those people who we're so actively ignoring sometimes are our true Christian care. Let's not let our devotion soar high above this hungry world of ours because the world sees it. The world sees the tables when we set them up. And the world is longing to see what the church will do about them. We believe in a God who came for broken people. He died for broken people. He died for the hungry. He died for the poor. He died for the foreigner. He died for the entire lift my professor wrote on the board that day. So let us recognize that if we move our tables, if we perform that berakacha mates on our own lives and remove those impurities, people are able to come in and God is faithful to meet them. God is faithful to work. God will meet those people. And to that we say, thanks be to God.